I am here with Roly Platt in his hotel room. Uh, Roly is one of my favorite harmonica players. He was introduced to me when I was working on a, a harmonica project, and uh, Roly has been kind enough to sit and talk to me about his life in music. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Where are you from? Good question. <laughs> um, I am from Simcoe, Ontario, as a kid, uh, which, not to be confused with Barrie area, Simcoe County, uh, near Port Dover. I uh, was there till I was about 12, and then moved to Toronto. Was that a small town? Yeah, about 10,000. Oh, so what was it like growing up in a small town like that? Uh, that's the only world I knew. It was kind of neat. We lived on the outskirts of town. Had a uh, My family, I guess, if, if we were rich, we would have been eccentric, but I think we were just bizarre. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money, but, but acted eccentric. Um, I, um, I laughed when I was listening to, uh, you did an interview with Omar, mm-hmm. and he was talking about his love of lizards and all things like that. And it reminded me of, uh, we had a lot of bizarre pets when I was a kid. For example? Um, a raccoon, <laughs> a skunk. Uh, it was a, no, these are pets. Really? Uh, in the house pets. Not the skunk, skunk was outside. Um, a uh, hawk, a Cooper's hawk. And these are things you would find, or how do they become pets? Uh, the raccoon was found somehow. I don't quite recall. It was a little baby, and it kind of bonded with my mom. <laughs> so wherever my mom would go, it would follow like a like a little kitten or a puppy. And the raccoon's good pets or not? It was a great pet. Oh. It was hilarious. Um, and then eventually it, it learned to, um, it was like a, like a cat or something around the house, but eventually we'd let it outside, and it would come back in by itself like a cat. And it slowly went back to the wild after a couple of years. The hawk was found uh, when my dad was hunting. I thought a hawk when I was a kid. I thought a hawk was about 10 inches, you know, 8 inches or something like this, like a little bird. Right. And he had it in this box. And it, <laughs> this is famous. My dad always says this. It's probably happened three different times. <clears throat> He'd leave the boxes there. And he said, I said, what's in it? He said, it's a hawk. He says, but don't open it. And he goes out to the, to the uh, goes into another room. And um, I'm little. So I look, I open the box a little bit. There's this huge bird in there, like it's massive. So anyway, he built a cage for it. We kept this hawk for a couple of years and made the newspapers, the local paper. Wow. Um, we had, uh, had a boa constrictor that my grandmother bought me for my birthday. <laughs> <clears throat> I told you, we're, if we had money, we'd be eccentric. Um, what else do we have? Uh, I'm forgetting something important, I know. Uh, praying mantis for a little while. And was, <laughs> that my dad would attempt to feed with a little piece of hamburger. Hamburger? Uh, many, many dogs and cats, Siamese cats. and. Um, okay, I, I think that was you are eccentric. Uh, yeah, that was the, the, the bulk of them. If I think of another one, it'll... I'll, I'll throw it in. Oh, yeah. The elephant, I forgot. <laughs> oh, a squirrel. I had a squirrel for a while. <laughs> so at the age of 12, you moved to Toronto. Well, I moved to St. Catharines for a couple of years and then to Toronto. Was music a big part of your life? No. Um, nobody, my mom was tone deaf. Um, my dad, not really, no. I think he might have been interested, but he didn't play anything, that's for sure. He used to fool around on 
a snare drum or stuff like that at a party. But uh, no, um, my mom was artistic. Uh, she painted in her latter years. Um, so I think I got a little bit from there, but it wasn't a musical family. The, my brother and sister, certainly not. And uh, so, yeah. And how did you wind up getting into music? Um, older brother. So he was almost six years older than me. And he would, uh, he'd bring home albums. This is before the internet and mm-hmm. <laughs> all that stuff. He'd bring home albums and he'd say, listen to this. It's good. And he, he had great taste. I don't know where he got this eclectic taste in music, like because it's he wasn't. It's not like he was into blues or like anything in particular. But there'd be um, one album was a Butterfield album. One album was Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Will the circle be unbroken? Another one was Ten Years After. Another one was the band. Another one was a John Mayall album. Another one was uh, Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. Another one was Leon Russell. Hmm. some obscure Leon Russell album, all these weird stuff. And he'd, they'd just be like the one-offs, you know, like he'd say, this one, you know. <laughs> Not like, you know, a whole collection of, of a certain artist. And so I, I'd force myself, the older brother, younger brother syndrome, if he thought it was good, oh, maybe it is good. And I'd listen to it, and I got into these different things, but it was the, um, he started playing harmonica as, uh, you know, as a hobby kind of thing. And I think it was around then that he brought home that Double Live Butterfield album. And so I, uh, and I tried listening to it and I couldn't get my head around it. I didn't understand the, it was, it was a big band. It was his, you know, had a three or four piece horn section and kind of jazz influence and different time signatures and a couple tunes. And it just made no sense to me at all. I hated it. I hated it. It was like, this is crap. <clears throat> and then there was one or two tunes on that record that that I suddenly got right. It was you know simpler tune, and I kind of got my that was the breakthrough for me. Was hearing Butterfield in a couple of those tunes, and I finally got what he was doing. I finally got inside it, and I could hear oh you know. And it was a whole new way of playing or listening because I listened to a lot of rock stuff, typical things you know everything from the Beatles to. Uh, you know, I can't even think. Were you, were you playing harmonica at that point? No. Okay. <clears throat> but it's, I obviously uh, had a desire to do that, and I always imagined, you know, how cool it would be to, to, you know, walk into a place and pull out a harp and get up on stage and play really well. Like, play as good as Butterfield, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, for my 17th birthday, I bought myself one as a present. And I made a little plan that I'm going to practice, you know, for two weeks and, and then look back and see if I made any progress. And then, and that's what I did. I kind of set a little goal and uh, practiced very regularly and um, started to see some improvement to the point where, you know, of course, my brother showed me the basic stuff. And then he'd go, give me that thing. You'll never be able to play. Right? <laughs> Thank you. But that was typical of everything. Right. And uh so I I tried doing something. You're doing it wrong. That that's that's terrible or whatever. And then he went away, and about six months later, he came back and he goes, "Play something for me." Like you know, I'm gonna check it out again. And I played, and he looked at me, and he stopped, and he goes, 
geez, I think you're better than I am. <laughs> and I went, F up. <laughs> so what did you learn and how did you learn? Because harmonica is a difficult thing to learn, right? Like it's not like you can it's watch a weird somebody in, play. And... It's a weird instrument. And there wasn't, especially back then, there was nothing to learn from. So I, was, I, I tell this to people now that are of the age of the internet. Uh, younger players and stuff that uh, and it applies to any any instrument but back then as anybody that's old enough to to remember there wasn't anything and the way information was this sounds so old I, feel, I sound like I'm 150 years old here but it but it's so different when you stop mm -hmm. and think about it because now you just google something you just youtube it and oh there's how you do that or that's what that looks like that's what kind of amp this guy's got that's what kind of like to the most minute detail and Back then, my internet was the cover of Butterfield's live album. There's a picture of him standing in front of a microphone. That's, okay, that's how you stand. That's how you hold the microphone, which or your hands around the, uh, the harmonica. Uh, you might see a picture of a blurry amp in the background on one of the albums. You know, that's the kind of amp you get. But other than listening and then talking to somebody like my brother, then you wait, you know, maybe a month later, there's somebody comes to Toronto that's playing, and you go down to the Alma Combo, and you watch, right? And you see, well, that's what kind of amp is that, or what's he doing there? What's, what's he holding, you know? And then if you're lucky, you're brave enough, you go up to him afterwards, you know, on the break, and, and ask him, pick their brain on stuff, right? And that's, and they, and, and they weren't as open as they are now with sharing everything on the internet. It was some people were very guarded about stuff and or didn't want to explain things to you and other people were, were pretty good. Usually it was like, you give me something and I'll give you something, you know. But show you show me you how to do that. You know? Tell me anybody who was very kind to you, who taught you something. Well, one of the first harp players I met was Rick Jeffries of Dutchie's band, Dutch Mason. Um, and I was, that's before I was even playing professionally. I was probably, started at 17, so I was probably just over 18. And I, um, I can't quite remember. I must have went out to see them play and probably walked up to him and started talking to him but it was kind of a mutual thing between him him and me like he was the professional big time guy and but he liked my playing like even at that age there was something that he liked there was he'd say like show me I do some lick or something that was a little more progressive than he was used to and uh you know and then I'd pick his brain on stuff and then he got me up to play, which was huge, because uh, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't even in a band at, at the time. And they were, uh, Dutchie's band was, was there was them and, and Downchild in, in Canada, really, <clears throat> at least uh, what I can remember. So, th so that was great. You know, so that's, that's one example of, you know, that's usually how it goes. They see something you can do, and then you trade information. You know? <laughs> but did you, like, listen to... A Butterfield album and just you use it, pick up the needle, put it back and listen to the solo over and over again and try to yep. replicate it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be the way to learn. Yeah. Instrument. Yeah. And what happened was you'd, you'd hear a bunch of 90% of it you can't do, but you might be able to hit one note that he hits when he hits it. And it's like, yeah, that, you know, I'm, I'm on it, you know. And then you work on, you know, the next one and, and you, you wind up just coming up with something close, you know, or not even close in the beginning. And I'd also find, um, I still do this to this day, which is 
I don't know. <laughs> it can't be good. It can't. I'm not a. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not the best guy to, to like as a musical student of things. I just. I know what I do, and I find what I call sandbox tunes. And I did it right from the very beginning. I played Mojo on Butterfield's first album. You know, I think it was like cut number five or something on side one, <clears throat> whatever it was. And I'd play that one song over and over again, like wear it out. And it be, because it was a tune that I liked. And I could play, I could experiment in. I could just practice all the stuff that I'd been practicing, not playing the music. I could do all these things and experiment. So it was like playing in the sandbox. I still do that to this day. I have four tunes, four different grooves. Right. <laughs> That's all I need, four grooves. But they, they lend themselves to experimenting. So I experiment with phrasing and, and, uh, and just, you know, anything that I've developed i try twisting it around in those tunes and they're perfect tunes for that i, I suppose i should branch out from that <laughs> well, so you, God, though, that's all i've done on my whole career other than you know like i copied people like i i'd learn I, I, there was a point where i had learned every note on like the better days the butterfield better days albums i could play with him and sound like him exactly like every little detail and um, I've forgotten it now, but I mean, that's how minute, you know, I, I, I tried to copy that. I got away from that, though. But uh, you also have a unique way of holding a harmonica, which is unlike anybody else I've seen. And you also have, like, I, I think, and I know very little about this, but when I hear harmonica players, I hear a lot of people playing in the Chicago blues vein or whatever, and a lot of them sound the same. You don't sound like everybody else. When, to my ears, your playing is a little unique. You also hold the harmonica a little differently in, in a slant as opposed to a cross. <laughs> Where does that come from? Um, I think it was right at the beginning when I the hardest thing with learning to play off the top is uh, hitting a single note and then from there bending a note. Right. <clears throat> and in order to bend a note, you got to get a good single note happening, a good strong single note. And it's quite difficult to move around on the harp and, and keep hitting the one note without blurring into the next note and getting two at once so probably through just experimenting with how to do this i you know maybe it helps if you turn the harp this way maybe it helps if you do that and then i turned it on its like a 45 degree angle and it made it easier that's all i know or i wouldn't have stuck with it um and people ask me that years later the only explanation that i could think that would make any sense is that because the holes are a little bit taller than they are wide, when you turn it at 45 degree angle, they're now actually at their widest point. Uh, it's like a diamond shape sideways. So would that <clears throat> contribute to you sounding a little different? To no, me? I don't think it has anything to do with the sound. It just that's that's how that particular thing happened. Okay. Um, sound wise, I would say. I had a lot of different influences musically in my first band, like playing, uh, it was a country band, but it was a progressive country band. It was more country swing and old jazz and um, some blues stuff. You know, we covered a lot of, lot of ground, but uh, there was never any harmonica in, like maybe, maybe one song out of 50 that we would do had actual harmonica in the original version. <laughs> Like, none of them had right. harp. They're not harp tunes. And you have to figure out something to play. And so, and playing non-blues stuff forced me to 
play different uh, with a different feel and a different tone as well like you you can't you don't want like a distorted amp sound when you're playing a, a you know beautiful country ballad or something it's just or a lot of the other tunes we did it just didn't work so you learned um to adapt to that that's part of it you know uh it wasn't called for to do that driving blues thing. Right. And I wanted to, right from when I was a teenager, to play. I'm, I was a kid that listened to rock music and, and your usual you know, Queen and all these different bands. I wanted to be able to take the harp and play all that stuff in my mind. Um, you know, and, and, and then, so I come from that and then I get my first band as a country band. I'm like, what? <laughs> What kind of twist of fate is this, right? I didn't ask for this. I hated uh, traditional country music. I, I didn't really? get it. I, 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 I really like it now. Like I really like playing it now. But I did not get it. Um, I liked the blues stuff we did. I like country. I loved country swing and country rock. But the they, the Phil would go you know, Phil Lloyd from Cement City. He'd say, "Okay, we're doing a four-four country thing," and he'd start this thing, and I'd um, I'm like. And they're all excited about it, right? All the rest of the guys who, who love the other stuff, too. The Allman Brothers, all these different bands. And I'm like, well, if they like that and they like this country music, maybe I'm missing something, right? So I slowly, slowly, slowly learned to, to appreciate it. It's a whole different bag playing, much different approach, which is really valuable, I think. And this is the band that toured across Canada? No, we just did Southern Ontario, um, back then, it was uh, you didn't do one-nighters unless you were a big, big act or whatever. But it was, every band was playing six nights a week. You mm-hmm. get a gig somewhere and you do six nights, which was amazing. For um, that's another huge thing that's sadly changed. Uh, so we'd go, we'd go to Sudbury, then we go. You usually go two weeks at a time or whatever, and you play. You're in the hotel room together. You're you're hanging around together, and you're playing six nights in the same place. You know, and a matinee sometimes. So you get tight. You get to, to, to talk about stuff. You don't just leave the gig at the end of the night and, you know, okay, good talking to you, you know, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. two minutes. Um, it was it was a whole different thing. It was like a little family. That band in particular was like a family. How long were you in that band for? Uh, three years. Okay. Yeah. And at this point, are you thinking you're going to be a full-time musician? Oh, I was I was a full-time musician on the first gig, on the first night. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I was That was the happiest day of my life at that, at that point. When I got my got my first job, I remember coming home to tell my mom. I said, "Guess what? I'm in a band." Put, put the squirrel excited. down, Ma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's for supper? And, and how did they feel about it? Well, my dad had passed away when I was younger, but my I was living with my mom. She was thrilled. She was my biggest, you know, one of my biggest supporters, um, and probably thrilled to get me out of the house, and <laughs> at least for a while. Um, yeah, I was. That uh, was that was big time to me. That was huge. I had only been playing for a year and a half, like from start to finish. I didn't. I wasn't somebody. It's pretty amazing. It, yeah, I mean, it was happened pretty quick. I put a lot of time into it, but it, I look back though. I hear, hear myself play back then. I'm like, oh my god, so bad. <laughs> so, so you got to start somewhere. And the first gig. This is significant. Um, I remember. I think it was in Listwell, Ontario. We were there for the week. Saturday night comes, and Phil turns around and hands me 180 bucks, which was the week's pay. At the end of the night, and I went, "Oh yeah, we get paid." 
I completely, honestly, completely forgot about the money. I, I, I was so happy to be playing, and I went, geez, and you get money too. Holy cow. This is pretty cool. So that was the only time that ever happened, by the way. <laughs> the I, next I, week it was old. Yeah, yeah, next week I was like, okay, come on, come on. <laughs> Eight hundred and eighty bucks. What, <laughs> what kind of crap is that? <laughs> but you became a full-time musician touring across Canada for a while. Yeah, I did, and that was more. Um, a few years later, I moved out east, um, and played with a couple different people out there. Dutch Mason is one of them. That's where I played with the his original band, <clears throat> as well as when years later when he'd come up to Toronto. But um, Dutchie actually had Ricky still in the band and hired me. So there was, if you can believe this, two don't, don't, tell it, yeah, don't tell anybody, but two harmonica players. One too many. Why, well, explain uh, the logic behind that. Well, Dutchie was very clear about it. He says, I'm hiring you because he, he always liked my playing. And if Ricky couldn't do something, he'd get me. But he says, I'm hiring you because I don't think Ricky's going to be around for much longer. Like, he was in bad shape. Oh, with, really? Oh, yeah, drugs and and uh, lots of stuff going on, but mainly a drug addict. And um, so he was worried that Ricky's just going to drop dead one day and, and be without a heart player. So rather than I'd be in another band and whatever, he'd figure I'll get him in the band now. Fortunately, Ricky's survived the, the nine months I was with him. So at that, during the nine months period, you must have had a lot of gigs where you, there was two harmonica players on stage. Yes. Rick was... and roll, we called ourselves. <laughs> Rick and roll. And what was that like? Weird. It was weird. Um, I mean, I, I was happy to be playing with them, so I, I tolerated. And Ricky, this was great because we'd be playing a song and, and, you know, we'd split stuff up. And then Ricky goes, oh, you know what, Rolly? This tune here, you know, we've been doing it a long time and I really like what I do in this, that one song. You know, can I have that, that tune, you know, or that section? Okay, yeah, fine. And then two tunes later, oh, you know what? That one as well. I, I Sorry. But, you know, I, you know that part that I play? I really like playing that part. You know, I've been doing it so long. Can I just do that? Okay. <laughs> so I'd sort of take the scraps of whatever was left. And then we'd do stuff together. I knew all his stuff from the, listening to his albums. So I'd play. We'd do like, you know. Well, this is pretty amazing when you think about it in terms of I presume that you would l listen to Dutch Mason while you were learning yeah, to play absolutely. harmonica. Yeah. And in Canada, I mean, Dutch Mason was the prime minister of the blues. And, and to be playing in that band not too long after he started is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah it was, it was uh, uh, cool, for sure. And then I presume you would have toured across Canada with that band? or No, no. Uh, so we played be... mostly out east at that point. Um, he wasn't, strangely, like, uh, things didn't go so well out east in general <laughs> the first few years. I won't get into all of it, but uh, it was. It seemed like everything that I was, I joined Dutchie's band, and then he's, like, almost quitting the business, you know, for a while. <clears throat> Nothing joined, to do with you? No, no, but it seemed like it did, because everything that I did like that, it happened within two weeks later. He, he changed, like, the guy that's been working all his life, there was another country band out there that Rick told me, he says, oh, man, if you work with so-and-so, he says he's always working. That's the one thing with him. Literally, two weeks later, he quits, totally quits the business. And I'm like, uh-oh. And then Dutchie did the same, almost the same kind of thing. And then 
we wound up playing working again but it was very iffy uh, money-wise very very scary period um it was with matt that i met i had met matt 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 yeah um I had met Matt before, uh, a few years before, with his uh, with Enver, his original harp player. But uh, because I was out east, it came up where Matt was putting his new band together. He, the old band disbanded, and uh, he was just going under the name Matt Minglewood. And what year would this be? Um, or decade? A decade would be close. <laughs> Late eighties, I don't know. Okay. That's off the top of my head, something like that. Yeah, mid eighties. So Matt was a big deal too. Yeah, Matt was cool. It was uh, that was a well, he was one of the big bands out there, and he was touring. Right. And I'd never really done. I had done. I went out west with uh, Roy Young. Um, I went out west with uh, Hawk Walsh. Hawk Walsh from Dalchow. Yes, absolutely. Great guy. Um, but uh, put it this way, I don't know if I would do it again. <laughs> People that, you know, glamorize the uh, touring band or whatever, and it's not like that, uh, you know, certainly. This is when I was 21, so. But it, it, just to give you an idea of this, I mean, I can't believe it. I ran into somebody from that band recently, a couple of years ago, who is the only person I've seen since then, since I was 21 years old, that, and he looked at me, and we were both, like, nodding, like, you you were there, you saw it like it's like being in World World War Two or something with another veteran, and you know you're you're the only two people that get it. We started in Toronto in November, and went to Ottawa was the first gig, and then all the way to Vancouver Island and back again. Uh, Thirteen weeks. Um, we had a hawk had rented a leased a cube van right off the lot so no customization like a literally a box a wooden box <laughs> with no windows and they had that little sliding door that from the box to the front of the thing that slides um it was filled this is back then with the the huge pa system those big butterfly pa systems it was a huge pa system like a full rock band size pa system and lights and all our stage gear in this van with nine people. Wow. Two of them, one of them was Hawk, who was over 300 pounds, I, I would imagine, and Tiny, <laughs> a man named Tiny, who was much larger than, than Hawk was. People um, who named Tiny are never Tiny, are they? No. And Tiny, everybody, a lot of people in the business will remember Tiny. He was a great guy. Um, nine people so they had put laid, laid the bins down in the back of the the van as sort of a, a bed <laughs> a platform and put a piece of foam on top of it and you would just climb in there so there'd be like seven of us in the back of this truck with no windows and half of that sliding door which is the only light coming in was covered up like because the bins were you know three two and a half feet high so you had a window literally of about two feet where you could sort of crawl up and stick your head up into the front where people were sitting and maybe see something, right? And a hawk <laughs> in the mountains, right? <laughs> Who hasn't seen the mountains yet? <laughs> I haven't. He goes, well, he wouldn't let you sit where he was. He was in the passenger. He never left the passenger side. He was never in the back of the truck once. 
And he says, he says, you know, no, you got to see this. And you can't see anything. I see rocks. <laughs> like, it's like driving through Sudbury. I see rocks at the side of the road. Was, geez, that's just amazing, right? So 13 weeks, we were getting paid $175 a week, uh, which even back then in 83, maybe, or whatever it was, 80, no, probably a little before that, 82, um, was not good money, uh, especially when you're buying your own food. So there's no per diem. This is basically you living off of this money. Yeah, literally. Uh, we, the rooms were paid for. And um, unfortunately, because money was tight uh, with, with Hawk, with, with things, that we were down the totem pole on uh, the priorities. So everything else would get paid, and then he'd be short. So we were actually getting about 150 bucks a week, and he'd like, I'll have to owe you, I'll have to catch, it, catch you next week kind of thing. And... Um, we were starving. Like we were, you know, you'd order a bowl of soup and like six packs of crackers, you know, and sit there and nurse the, the crackers, you know, at Christmas Day. We're, this is over Christmas too. We're on Vancouver Island. I had 35 cents in my pocket, literally, and I smoked back then. And I split a pack of smokes with somebody. I think there were 75 cents or something. So uh, what are you thinking at this point? Are you thinking, I can't wait this to get is the home. life? I can't wait to get home. I was, it was awful. It was brutal. And there was more much more i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> like that uh it was it was so bad i think we lasted about 11 weeks and then hawk said you know we've got this opportunity to play somewhere and and i just said no we all said no let's go home you know i've never been so glad to to, to be home but it was it was it was funny it was unbelievable and on top of that <laughs> that wasn't enough two weeks before we're going I come down with the worst case of mono, like a full-blown <laughs> case of mono where I'm, I'm un, like unconscious. They thought I was dying. Like for the first <laughs> week, I'm lying on the couch, spots all over me. I can't eat. Can't, I can't even be awake. I barely was standing uh, the second week. And my doctor, like a moron, says, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Just take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I slept. I literally slept from Ottawa to Thunder Bay was the next gig. I slept other than one hour. I slept the whole time because I was... <laughs> you in, in a dark shape. cage, kind of. Yeah, it was perfect, perfect uh, spot for that. But yeah, anyway, if anybody... I Besides playing harmonica, I also offer a consulting service for parents. If they have kids that want to get into the music business, I, I, it's, it's, I charge a lot of money, but I pretty much guarantee they spend an hour with me, the kids spend an hour with me, they, they won't want to be a musician. <laughs> And if they, if they, yeah, scared straight, that's right. And if they do want to be a musician after that, they're going to be big. <laughs> that's my theory. So when you finish this tour, what are you thinking about the music industry? Um, what's next? <laughs> uh, can't get any worse. How about that? So, but you're not deterred by the idea of music? No, no, it's, it's all I knew. It's all I knew how to do. It's all I really wanted to do. Like it was, uh, I liked I didn't like the conditions of that or whatever, but I liked the, uh, and that was the, the first experience outside of Cement City was my first band. Right. And then I went from that to, to that tour <laughs> and then started working around Toronto, you know, played with a couple of different bands and things, then went out east, kind of, that's how it happened. So I was just, you know, I just, I was still a keener, you know, I was still learning to play, I was still getting better, trying to get better. And um, and had done started to do jingles and stuff, uh, a little bit of studio work back then as well. How did that happen? Um, 
most of the studio work I got was through, it's all done through word of mouth. And the first one I got, the uh, first jingle, was through Pepe Francis, Mike Francis, studio guitar player back then. And um, he, if they say, get so-and-so, that's what they do, because they, they take his word on it. So I, <laughs> I went down. Um, now, I, I, I can't read music to this day. I mean, I know a little bit about it now, very basic stuff, but I knew nothing then, nothing. And I couldn't read a chord chart, didn't want to read a chord chart, couldn't, don't understand what notes I'm playing, you know. But so I, you're an ideal candidate for a studio musician. Oh, perfect, yes, a perfect fit. And back then, it was studio, the studio scene and the studio guys were, they're all heavy readers. It's all a closed circuit, kind of tight-knit circuit of guys. The same people do are doing all these things. There's only about four or five big studios doing, you know, 80% of the work. So I walk in uh, to this one. It was, I don't know if you're familiar with Sid Kessler, but no. he was a he was a big name back then. Uh, I don't know all, he was in marketing and stuff, but he got into the jingle business somehow. And he was he was a great um, as I found out later like a, he's he's a salesman like a, a, a amazing salesman like just perfect at it and I loved it right and so anyway the first jingle I get there and they it's all studio guys right and it's like jingle number two or three for them that day probably you know and but nobody everybody assumes you've been there a thousand times before so you walk in and and nobody's like oh, okay you come over here and you do this they just leave you on your own till you till it's time so i'm standing there and i'm i don't know where i'm supposed to be i'm out in the hall kind of hearing i could hear the music in the, the room i could see the what i realize now was the marketing team and sid and the writer you know in the control room so I, they're playing a song i'm assuming that's this is the song i'm going to be playing on so I start, I find the key, right? Okay, it's this key. And I quietly, very quietly practice out in the hall, listening to the tune. And, and I slowly start to get it. And then all of a sudden, the key changes. I'm like, what? Okay, they've changed the key. All right, now what keys? Okay, there it is. It's an F now. Okay, and then I start playing that. And it's like, it's slightly different or whatever. Anyway, then it's, okay, uh, you're the harmonica player? Okay, in you go. So they send me in. I've got sheet music in front of me. Which means nothing to yeah. you. <laughs> and I'm looking in the glass, and, and they're, okay, we're going to run it. Oh, pardon? <laughs> we're just going to roll it. Just just play. Oh, oh okay. And, and I had memorized what I was going to, this is by a fluke in this particular case. No, but so I, is I, that easy for you? Like, if you hear something, can you replicate that easily? Um, not particularly, but I had been there for 20 minutes, so after 20 minutes of playing the same thing, I managed to okay. get the hang of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so they hit play, record, and I played what I thought sounded good from start to finish, and I do 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 and I end it, right? You know, and they went, that's great, you know, and in any, I think he even said, do it again, and we'll, like, can you double that, which would have normally killed me, because I wouldn't remember what I did, but because I kind of memorized the part, I said, sure, right, and I did it again, and I was done in probably 10 minutes, and I walked out, and, oh, no, so I'm in the middle of this, and then he goes, okay, now we're going to do the 30, I'm like, okay, <laughs> no idea what that means, <laughs> Sure, why not? That's what I was just thinking. So 
they and then it's in a different key so i play the second version and we finish that i go back out into the hall and i stick my head into the control room and i said what's a 60 and what's a 30 and the writer comes over quietly and he says uh, 60 seconds and 30 seconds i went oh that's why it changed keys and it's slightly different wow. <laughs> right and Sid hears this, and because he's a great salesman, instead of making being uncomfortable with it, he makes a big. He goes, "I love this kid. He doesn't know nothing about music, and he plays his ass off, right?" <laughs> and they were all like, "Yeah, yeah." You know, the marketing team's all happy, you know, that he's got this hillbilly or something in there. But Sid walked me, which he, I guess he doesn't normally do, but he, he kind of like took a liking to me because I was such an idiot <laughs> with that stuff. He's got his arm on my back, and he's walking me out to the door, going, "You know, it's a real treat to." See, to see somebody like you you know you just play you know, like you're not a reader and all this stuff anyway that was my first experience in the studio uh, in a on a jingle at least I so did. but you got hired back yeah yeah many got, times uh, many times yeah he he liked me because of that i think i was such a novelty to the so every time you would kind of hear things out and then kind of learn it well you, you, yeah usually you don't get that kind of lead time on it though you know so they'd play they were they were really gentle with me they knew i couldn't read and they were i think i was the only guy you know that they knew doing this you know but i learned what i learned uh, in with studio work was not overplaying and just playing a little bit is better than playing too much right and and especially in those situations because it's not about the harmonica usually you know especially the ones i did like you you i'd be all excited like, hey i did this jingle for mcdonald's and you'd finally hear it on tv and you and you'd hear why well, got people gathered around the tv <laughs> look look and you hear one note you know at the end <laughs> oh okay well, there was more when i did it but i guess i got but studio work is good work, right? And it pays well? Um, Sometimes. Yeah, it actually doesn't pay that well. Oh. The, the, the musician end of the jingle world is not good at all. Uh, back then, you, the idea was to get residuals. So the initial pay was brought down, uh, my understanding, because you would get residuals, which would add up to a lot of money. But that faded away, uh, the residual uh, them reusing things seemed to fade away, oh, right, and you yeah. were still stuck with this kind of low pay. Like, it doesn't pay what you think it would, I'll put it that way. Oh. A singer's got good right. money, anybody that's uh, with a voice on it. I did one um, not too many years ago, a few years ago, but later in my career. Um, got a call from somebody I'd done work for before, and uh, she goes, hey, Rolly, you know, I got this project. Uh, it's, it's a movie, and it's big, and it's, you know, we need you. We want, they want harmonica on it. It's in two weeks, and it's at, it's at Manta, which was the big one of, one of the two or three big ones. And uh, she goes, it's going to be great. She goes, it's Lee Haldridge is, is conducting. Conducting? <laughs> <laughs> conducting what? <laughs> uh, train? So... Uh, Long story short is it's booked and she hangs up. Just before she hangs up, she goes, uh, and Lee Haldres, who I didn't know, I now know who he is, was a very famous American uh, composer, conductor. So she goes, okay, we'll see you in a couple of weeks and you'll be on the floor with the orchestra. So we'll see you then. Click. Orchestra. On the floor. So orchestra, I know what that means. That's not good news. 
And on the floor means live, which I very rarely did. They'd almost always get me in as an overdub because they knew I didn't read and it was just made more sense, right? Why screw up everybody else? <laughs> well, I'm trying Except to figure... piece orchestra. That's right. Well, yeah. So now I picked up the phone again and I said, hello. I said, you know, I can't read, right? She goes, oh, they know that. They know that. They're looking for somebody that plays your style or something. But I'm thinking, well, there, there, there's something missing here. <laughs> Because if I can't read and I'm live on the floor, she goes, don't worry about it, blah, 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 blah. My brother's like, you know, it's not going to be as bad as you think. You're overthinking it. You know, it's not so bad. So you're, you're always over, overthinking it. I get there uh, early because I'm nervous. And I still haven't got my head around it. And I walk in to Manta. It's in the main room. There's about a 40 to 45-piece seating, you know, of musicians. Nobody's there, and they've got the sheet music, you know, binders on each thing, music stands. So I thought, I'm going to find mine first. So I sit down. I see one that says harp, so I sit down, and I start leafing through it. <laughs> You're way ahead of me. <laughs> I'm leafing, and it's a stack about an inch thick, right? And now this isn't a, a song. This is six hours of work that day, and then a three-hour call the next day at least the second day. So two days in the studio and six hours. I'm leafing through, I, I'm looking at this. I mean, it wouldn't make any difference if it was a simple chart, I couldn't read it, but this was like something out of a movie, right? This is like, what is this? And, I, and I'm thinking, God, you know, harp, orchestra, hmm. And I just start closing the thing, I wonder. And I turn and I just got up from the chair and there's the harp, harpist from the Toronto Symphony dragging her harp through the door. And I like quickly move away from her chart. Like I was gonna, if she had a, said anything, like saw me, I was gonna say, well, you know, I like to look at other people's charts because it gives me a better <laughs> sense of the, the big picture, you know, when I'm right. playing. And so I move away. I'm now panicking, right? I find harmonica, the chart, and um, I sit down. And <laughs> the, everybody starts piling in, and I'm looking at my charts, and it, there's no key signature on them. There's no treble clef. There's no, it's in E, nothing, no notes. And there's just chords written out. So I'm asking everybody I know that Pepe was there, like Francis, who normally holds my hand when he can on these things to help in any way he can. He goes, I can't help you, Rolly. I'm behind you in the booth, you know. And, and guys are looking at it. He goes, well, I don't know. It's, there isn't really a key signature. I said, well, I have to know what key it is because I have to pick what harmonica. That's all I need to know. That's all the only piece of information I need, right? Because uh, I can't even do it on the fly because it's live. So they, uh, he said, well, it ends in D. So I, it's probably in D. Okay, great. Probably in D. I'm <laughs> writing on the chart, right? Likely, you know, you probably won't get fired. You know, I'm ready to leave, right? I thought, this is not so. I thought, okay, uh, I've told him I can't read, you know, so, but I'm going to go, just make sure I'm going to go speak to the conductor. Now, I didn't realize that conductors and orchestral folk are a little different breed, and they don't address him as, as by his name or Mr. Haldridge. It's, it's maestro. Yeah. I don't know that, right? I walk into the control room, and he's standing there discussing something with the engineer, and I said, excuse me, Lee? <laughs> I'm trying to be friendly, right? And he says, yes. And I said, hi, I'm Roly. I'm the harmonica player. I said, did so-and-so tell you that uh, I, I don't read music? 
No. <laughs> okay. Um, don't worry about that. Uh, I'll just, that's fine. Thanks. <laughs> and I go sit down. And so now, like, I, I had to make a decision. Do I leave and go, this is nuts? Or do I stuck, stick it out? And I did stick it out. And I had been studying, believe it or not, for the past six months, I decided I'm going to try and teach myself how to read music. So I got how to read music, you know, a little book that I know nothing about. I just picked one. And it's like, okay, there's five lines, and then you put it, you know, that's the level I was at, right? Um, But it, uh, it had given me enough knowledge that I had a couple of things I could figure out, and I kind of knew a little bit about the number system. So I could look at the, if I knew it was in D, I could, I could mathematically count in my head, okay, that's three, that's a third, that's a fifth, you know. And so I'm writing numbers above these chords and things. And Pappy leans over and he goes, do you know what tacit means? I go, no. <laughs> he goes, it means silence, don't play. And it's all over the place, right? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> he goes, so you're, it's, it's tacit here for 22 bars, okay? Okay, great. He says, you come in on bar 23, but he says, the last two bars are bars of two. What? (laughs) Oh, my God. This is the first one, right? And so I'm sitting there, and they... And it goes with the violins going and stuff, and I'm counting. Like, I got my toes going, my fingers. One, two, three, four, two, two, three. Then I go, thirteen, three, four, fourteen. Was that 14, 15, and I get to 20, because the last two bars are two, and I counted one, I think that means one, two, one, two, and I played the note that I had written down, and just as I played it, I, the corner of my eye, I see Lee <laughs> pointing his stick at me, <laughs> which means I, I hit it at the right time. And, and it was the right note. It was just a long, nice note, right? I thought I did it, right? I played it. Now only six hours to go. <laughs> I don't know how I, honestly, don't know how I got through it. Because, but it was through that tiny bit of knowledge. I was, it was like an out-of-body experience. It was so far beyond what I thought I could do. But I was... I, you know, every time I'd go, and I'm looking and there's a note that I'm thinking, I've written like a flat seven or something. I'm like, that can't be right. This isn't that kind of a song. It's like, a, that's a bluesy note, right? That's not going to work. And I hit it and it's like perfect. It sounded perfect. Like, oh, he, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Lee, you know. So anyway, I made it through that with a little help on some things that I, I had to overdub. But it was a, um, that was a, a real interesting experience for wow. sure. The other thing I know about you is that at one point in your life, you decided to quit music and learn a trade. Yes. I don't know if that was the right process, but that's what you did. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, it was more of a uh, extreme, probably the most difficult decision I had made in my life, <laughs> it seemed like at the time. Um, I uh, many factors came into play, but uh, all at once. But it was over a two or three year period. The economy was uh, going down. The amount of work, you know, bands were shrinking in size because of that. Clubs were going down to three nights a week, or then two nights, and all these things together. And I wasn't working that much, but I was also burnt out um, from what I, you know, change a life without getting into all that, but a change a lifestyle, major change a lifestyle. 
Um, and but the the idea of, of continuing in music was becoming more and more challenging. Uh, but I had no intention of letting go of that, and that was the hard part. It took me probably three years of, you know, defending <laughs> the idea of continuing playing, you know, where the world's telling me, you, you know, you might want to look at, you know, something on the side or some other thing. And I'd never, other than when I was a young teenager, I'd never done anything other than play harmonica. Even within the music business, I was a very limited you know, had painted myself into a small corner because I just played harmonica. That's all I wanted to do. Although and, you did play with many different kinds of bands and did session work. Absolutely. But I, but as far as, you know, other instruments, learning another skill within the music business, you know, like I never, and most musicians have something they do on the side and I, I never did. I was, I'll say too proud. I don't know. That's <laughs> probably other reasons, but I didn't, I just didn't. I'd starved to death before I did anything, you know, like it was like, oh, no, I'm a musician. And so, you know, anyway, at this point, it, 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 I was in a corner where I, I had to make a decision and, and I was terrified. I was terrified of uh, at 39 years old or whatever it was of, you know, if I was to go in another direction, that means I'm leaving music. Uh, so the intention was never to leave music, but I knew that if I went in another direction, it would take all my resources to learn how to do something and, you know, make a, even possibly make a living at it, which means I'm abandoning music. And that was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. That was awful. And that's what was stopping me from doing it, you know, sooner. So... Um, I had some pretty interesting things <clears throat> sort of happen that pointed me in a direction. I won't get into it all, uh, too much background information needed, but some important sort of revelations happened. And I decided to take another direction. And I started with, you know, um, it wasn't, let's go to college, I'm going to do this or that. I needed... Uh, uh, you know what? I, 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 none of this makes any sense unless I explain a, a major component to all this. And I've never talked about this publicly. Uh, I, if I talk to other people with the same issue, uh, they get it, but um, it's a little different talking to, to normal people. <laughs> but my, um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict and uh, got sober, uh, clean and sober 24 years ago. So that's the lifestyle change that I was talking about. So just to, <clears throat> without getting in, into it all, um, I was almost dead, um, literally. And your life, you know, you get so caught up in, in just surviving, uh, trying to uh, get through the day each day, that by the time I got to the end and by the time I went got help, um, it was like when you come out of that and you're sober, it's like being the frozen man is the only thing I can think of. You're being thought out like in the future where you're literally, it felt like I was starting all over again. So this is before this change of career thing. That happened a few years into the into recovery. But, you know, the, I had to put a life together from age 
35, I had to start, you know, people say, that, well, I lost everything, you know, I didn't have anything. <laughs> I never had anything. So I, I had to, I didn't have a bank account. I didn't, uh, hadn't paid taxes in 17 years or filed, not paid, but I hadn't filed income tax. I didn't have a social insurance number. I, I was like non-existent. I never had a car in my name. Wow. I was living out of a suitcase, happy, you know, for, for some of it, you know, like I had a good time and stuff, but uh, had not, um, you know, done any of the grown-up things, you know, like with your life. So when I got sober, like I said, I that was that was that process. So all I can say is I can't explain it unless you've been through it. That it's it's like starting your life all over again, and so everything is new again. Everything is you know a challenge, and and uh, you know there's a lot of fear involved with with stuff. So you know, and I was playing, but then you know, like I said, the the writing was on the wall that I needed to do something else. So that leads up to your question. And so, how do you decide on what that thing is? Um, how I got into what I got into the graphic design. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just had to pick something. <laughs> is, okay. is what it but was there to. any indication in the past to school or whatever that you had some talent to do? I design? I liked. I art, art and I was artistic uh, when I was a kid, you know, a teen, young teenager. Um, and I was looking, trying to look at it logically. If I am going to look at something, then, uh, you know, what's growing and what industry is growing. And back then, computers were just, and I like computers. My, my uh, uh, partner at the time had a, a 486 when they first come out. Right. Woo! Which was much better than the 386. Oh, way better. It's like it was. It was like three <laughs> times as fast. It was big time. And uh, and I, I took to that. I, I, I liked it. And I liked the drawing programs. I'd sit and draw these horrible little drawing programs with little pixels. But I'd make pictures out of it, right? I'd sit there and draw, right? And so I had an interest in that. And then when I was looking at options, um, graphic design, you know, the, the course I actually took was more multimedia, it was 3D animation and, um, uh, you know, a little bit of web design, but it covered everything, you know, so it's like, a, and the, you come out the other end and I, I wasn't trained for anything <laughs> and, and nothing to do with graphic design. That was the one thing they didn't teach was graphic design, which they had a course in that. So when I got out, I... Um, Nobody was asking, nobody was calling saying, uh, can you do a 3D model of a brochure for me? Or, you know, but they would say, I need a business card or I need a flyer or I need a brochure. And I went, all the young people that are real keeners. And I was a keener. I was totally into this at the time. I loved it. It was once I made the decision to go in that direction, I ran with it. So it wasn't uh, difficult once the decision was made. No, uh, I, it was like somebody, you know, took the, the shackles off and I was, was excited again about stuff. And that's all I did. I lived it. I, it was a two year course. And, uh, but I was still playing. I just wasn't pursuing that actively. So I, you know, gigs that would just come up, I do. I uh, never, and then that was a revelation to realize, as everybody said, you don't have to give it up. You just, you know. But to me, it was that's how it felt. Um, and then anyway, I wound up sort of training myself in graphic design, and and so I've been doing that. I kind of focused in that area for a few years while I played. Uh, but didn't put any effort into the music end of it. I was more focused on keeping that business going. And um, 
it's work. (laughs) It's different than, uh, you know, having played music for so long. Um, Was music never work for you? No. No. And still isn't. Uh, What I discovered is like from that point where I was doing more graphic design is I realized, and it wasn't that many years ago, a few years ago, I started to get a pull in the other direction again, back to to music, which was really interesting, I thought, because uh, I wasn't expecting that. <clears throat> I um, I started to see the value for me in playing. Nothing to do with the money. There's no value. <laughs> I've come to that conclusion. But it's 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 the it's what it does for me. And so at at 50 years old, I st- it started to dawn on me that I need to play. It's not, um, this isn't really an option. <clears throat> it's the only, what it is for me, and it became evident after that, is that uh, it's an emotional outlet for me that I don't get through any other thing. Uh, I don't, I, I get good feelings when I design something, you know, a logo design that's really cool. It's like, wow, that's really good, you know. Or somebody says, what a beautiful website you did, or whatever it is, I, that feels good. Um, it's not the same. <laughs> it's, and it's nothing to do with what you get back. It's the process of playing is an emotional outlet for me. And I didn't know that until I was in my just 50s. The playing or is it the live experience? Like, is it, is it's, it well, I'd say it, 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 it's validated, I guess, when it's a live experience. Like, I, I, I love to play, but getting having that reaction from the audience is just a, a true sort of confirmation that yeah you know I, it, it was worth it all this practicing and all this stuff like i can play and i'm affecting people that's it i i believe that would have to be part of it i mean i i know when i'm playing myself you know like well that was good but it's no it's like you're playing in a vacuum you, i need to be playing for people to really get that, but it's there's the it's that extreme uh, where you're holding nothing back, and I, that's how I approach playing. I go at it, you know, like uh, like I I'm more into it at the end of the night than I am at the beginning because I just like I getting getting warmed up, and I just I let it all go, I let it all out as uh, in my playing, and that's that outlet. It's like be like standing on a mountain and screaming at the top of your lungs or something, you know, like, um, it's that kind of, I, I feel grounded afterwards. Peppy actually was, he said it years ago. He says it's therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I'm getting paid to, to, it's my therapy. Um, how long did it take from the moment that you decided that you would pursue graphic arts, going through the school system and then trying to establish your own business because that can't be easy no it wasn't to, easy That's so i mean that must have been a few years where it was yeah. difficult yeah but how long at what point did you did you think hey you know this is kind of working out i'm making a living and um probably three or four years it took i mean the school was two years and then another couple of years after that at least i mean i was doing jobs at seven bucks an hour when my son was born just just born just as I finished school and I'm taking these jobs you know cash jobs at seven bucks an hour just to get the experience of working in a little place and it was hard on the ego too because I'm used to I'm used to being like hey Rolly you know like you know you're good at what you do and I'm like at the very bottom of the 
And people uh, don't applaud after you design something. They don't applaud after, they still don't, you know. <laughs> but did you ever doubt that? Like, did you, did you know that th this would be, the end goal would be that you would be making money being a graphic artist? And I was, I was really into it. Like I, like I said, I, I, I had a really good attitude about it. I, I loved doing it and I loved learning about it. And I was, every time I'd learn something new, I was like, oh man, that's so cool. And, so I was I was a keener in it, and that's what got me. Uh, that's what people said back then. They, they that's why they hired me because they liked my attitude about it, right? So you know what I think after maybe eight ten years of that, I realized you know when you're doing it for a living and making decent money, there's a lot of pressure that goes with it. There's a lot of time demands, and and you're under the gun, and it's you're not sitting there drawing pretty pictures for yourself. You're just getting stuff done, right. done, right? And um, that took its toll on me as well. Like it's not, I mean, there's a lot worse jobs out there than that, but it, it, it's uh, compared to music. I just, like I said, as I'm doing that, I, my heart, there was something, again, not right, you know? And it led me back to playing again. And, you know, I don't think I would ever, I don't know if I would ever go back to music full time and just do that. I might, if, if, if right now that's not an option uh, financially. But I realized too that to do music to the degree that you know I might want to, you, it's a full-time thing. It's really hard to be at a high level in the music business without being full-time. You can't just even though you've put in your hours. Well, maybe there is a way to do it. I just think I think realistically, I look around and I you know I work with Susie Vinick and, and Rick Fines and different people. And I watch what they do and have to do. And I go, geez, that's a lot of work. You know, like they're, they're, they're doing a lot of work just to keep working. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that the playing is the easy part, right? I think for, I'm sure most musicians would admit that. And I realize that. So I, I, it's not like I have, I'm uh, not realistic about it. Um, so I think that I like having the balance in there. I like, you know, but I, you know, I don't think I'd ever go back to a full-time designer or not think, I don't know yet if I would go back to being just relying on music. Cause when you have to do it, it's different. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the fact that you, you know, I mean, I don't know the details about what you went through, but the, I, I know about, um, you deciding to stop and going back to school and to learn this. And the fact that you did that is one of the reasons why I respect you so much. Then the other thing that happened was a few years ago, you decided to release your own solo album, your first solo album, which is pretty amazing that you did that. How about that decision? How did that come about? Um, it ties in with what I was saying about the interest in music. Uh, again, uh, partly it's the clock is ticking. This is something... You know, I could tell you, well, you know, I was just waiting until the more appropriate time. I could tell you all kinds of crap about what it is. But, you know, to be honest, it's something I always wanted to do. It's, 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 but I was, you know, I was so used to being a sideman and I was a good sideman. You know, I still am a good sideman. And I take pride in that because it's, it's, there's a skill set involved in that to know how to do that that few people have, um, especially in harmonica. So, um, but I was very comfortable in that role. So stepping out and doing my own CD means you're putting yourself in the, in the limelight. You're putting yourself center stage and everybody's behind you now. That's a different thing. <laughs> so doing a CD is, is one aspect to that, but I also knew 
that by doing a CD, people are like, so when, when are you coming to my club? When are you playing here? You know, when can we, where, why aren't you playing? You know. And then you have to deal with all those side men. Oh, I know. <laughs> Terrible. Um, <laughs> but it, but it, that's part of it, is I knew what goes with that. You right. know, like the, making that move to be the, the, the artist and, the, and the, the focal kind of thing. But also, A, it's very expensive. Um, it's... Uh, a huge commitment it was for me especially doing my first one because I didn't you know I had to there were so many things I wasn't familiar with how to do I had to figure out how to do it myself mm -hmm. um, I don't play any other instruments so there's all these hoops that I had to jump through to, to put it together it took a lot of a lot of time and you didn't really sing either right I didn't I hadn't sung in 30 years I sang when I was in Cement City I did two or three songs and I sang them exactly the same way every night I never practiced I never tried to get any better I just what I would call just went to you know A to B <laughs> that's it right and then I stopped many years ago and I kind of decided you know because of music I'm not going to focus too much on it I'm going to uh, but if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to play. I'm just going to do what I want. You know, if I'm not going to take it too serious, I'll just play harmonica and I won't, uh, um, I'm not going to, not going to sing because that's not my strong point. What a great move. What a smart move. I was so brilliant. I made so many great decisions in my life. <clears throat> so years and I, you know, got, I don't know. And they'd say, they say, well, you used to sing mojo. You used to do this tune. You sang something. And I go, no, I don't sing anymore. Jesus Christ. <laughs> So and come time to record your album, I yes. So I'm written a couple of songs, but which is also a first. Um, and the one tune, ripping it up, that's on the CD is a, like a rock and roll boogie woogie thing. And I had somebody in mind to play piano on it, in particular this one, and sing because I couldn't sing. Right, I'm not, and I didn't want the main thing why I wasn't planning on singing on the record. I didn't want my singing and lack of ability to in any way take away from what the CD's about. The CD was about my, my heart playing. And I didn't want to try and be the singer at the same time. People go, well, he's not much of a singer. You know, like I, I'm not trying to be a singer. So, but I had, um, the guy who I had in mind uh, wasn't available to do this. He's gone, like, while we're recording. So that was a write-off. And I'm, I said to Lance Anderson, the producer, I said, I got a problem. And I played him the demo, and I sang the demo, because uh, just to give him an idea of the tune. And, you know, I said, I don't know who's going to sing it, though. And he's listening to it, and he goes, and it wasn't good. Like it was, like I said, I was just, you know, right. get the dust off after 30 years. And he says, you should sing it to me. And I looked at him with a very serious, and I, I leaned in, and I said, don't bullshit me here. I said, because I've already considered this, and people, other people said you should sing and all this. And he goes, no, you should. And I went, okay. You know, but I'm like, I'm holding you accountable <laughs> if it sucks. And from that second, as soon as I left his place, I'm practicing. Now I'm practicing every day singing. And I, you know, that's what I did. Is I, so I did the one tune on the, on the um, record. And since then because I pulled that off. <laughs> so my own people go, hey, you sound all right. You know, it sounds pretty good. Um, I've been practicing ever since. Uh, so I've got a few tunes that I do, and I, uh, I kind of like it. 
I'll, so how was that whole experience? Like now that you look back on this, what, a couple of years since the album was released? Yeah. And you got nice critical acclaim and whatever. Tell me about that experience of recording. Uh, oh, it's, it was great. It was a huge thing for me. It was a big, you know, like I said, especially the older you get, the, the bigger the deal is, it seems, you know, and mm -hmm. for me anyway. Um, if I had done that when I was 25, it just would have would have just happened and next, you know, that type of thing. But waiting this long, it's almost like, you know, geez, I've waited maybe too long, you know. No. And so it's it was a big deal, you know, like uh, and, and I, I wanted to do it right. I wanted to do it in a good studio. I wanted to take my time with the things that mattered to me. I wanted it to sound really good production wise as far as not not like with a lot of stuff going on but just recorded well mixed well and mastered um so that it sounds because i've done enough studio work that was the problem i had done enough stuff in good studios to know when it's done right mm -hmm. it sounds good and even if you know um like you know even if the playing's great on a lot of cds like oh, man that guy's a killer guitar player if it if it's recorded poorly or they don't take the time and spend the money on it, it just doesn't stand up. It's not something you want to listen to because it just doesn't sound as good as your, uh, re the rest of your collection. Uh, I wanted that and I feel I got that. Um, and as Lance pointed out, when you do a record like that, it stands the test of time. You're 10 years from now, you can listen to it and it still stands up because it's, it was recorded properly. Right? Mm -hmm. So that felt good. Um, I was really pleased a couple of tunes that I wrote on there uh, I'm, I'm really happy with those uh, being my my first attempt at it and um, also the singing was a, a cool thing like to, to stick your neck out and go okay I'm gonna sing <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I believe me I'm not a singer I I'm, I sing a song you know, like there's a difference. There's singers. I know it's a singer. But you don't embarrass yourself. No, I just, I, but I'm smart enough to know from playing harmonica to know what's the most efficient way to get from A to B. Like, you know, with the, you don't need a lot of, and I te teach people, tell them that when I'm teaching harmonica, you don't need a lot of licks to sound really good. It's what you do with the simple ones that you can do that makes all the difference in the world. And that's my philosophy in playing now. It's I try not to, um, I'm not in a contest to demonstrate how complicated I can play. You know, I do that occasionally. And I'll go, you know, there'll be a couple of solos where I'm trying to outdo, you know, the most bizarre thing I can think of or whatever. But in general, I don't do that. In general, in fact, I take kind of pride in, in playing something really simple that's effective. Mm -hmm. in a tune even though a harp player might listen to it and go well i can play that but i think you're one of the more melodic players thanks you just, i just love your harmonica playing so the album is called inside out and you can find it at your website or you can find it at my website yeah well, on itunes I on presume. itunes as well yeah um i want to thank you for this like i really i know we've been talking about doing this for a long time we're done come on <laughs> <laughs> i got uh, more stories no nah. Didn't work out I, very did I tell well, you about the, the squirrel? I did. <laughs> <laughs> did I tell you about my first job? <laughs> Go ahead, tell me about your first job. Uh, it was in Simcoe, and I had a fair there. And my first job, I was very proud of this, was on the midway, was at the ring toss. <laughs> Working the ring toss, I thought about that, and I thought, Jesus, 
you worked at the ring toss. That was your first job. I can see a pattern starting here. <laughs> Look how far you've come. And I learned that games that the everybody thinks, oh, they're all fixed. And the guy taught me this guy with two teeth missing and just like out of something, out of a movie, right? <laughs> I loved it, right? This is, I love that atmosphere. And he, uh, he says... Um, he says, they're not fixed so you can't win. He says, they're fixed usually so you will win when they want you to. So the ring toss had these three big rings, about a foot and a half across, and there were three rings out of about 500 of them there that were bigger than the other three, and they're marked. And he says, when you see a guy that's pretty good at this, getting close with getting over the prize, he says, you give him the three good ones. And then he, he wins, and then you make a big deal out of him winning, and then 8,000 people dive in to play because they've seen somebody win. And then you, they get the regular size rings, which actually, he says, all the games are hard enough to win as it is. You don't need to rig them. <laughs> they're, they're damn near impossible. Is this like a corny secret? Like, is, are people going to go I thought so it? at the time, yeah. right? Yeah. I thought it was great. I loved it. But that, was my, that was my first job. So sorry to interrupt your ending of the show. I don't know how to end it now. <laughs> no, but thank you, because we've been talking about doing this for a while. I appreciate you opening up about your past and your life. And, you, yeah. know, um, you didn't have to do that, but you did. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and as I said, you're somebody I respect a great deal for changing your life and becoming a great... And I presume some of it had to do with becoming a good graphic artist so you can design your album cover when you did your first album. That was the purpose of it. That was the whole purpose of it. <laughs> good planning. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. You're very welcome.